Welcome to the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. To learn more about Salem Alliance, including gathering times and other resources, visit us online at salemalliance.org. Today's talk is given by Jennifer Roth. Uh, Good morning. I'm glad you're here. My name is Jennifer. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for being here. If you're with us on live stream, we're glad that you're with us in that way. I also want to thank you for being a generous church. Thank you for being a church that gives financially so that the ministries of this place can move forward. There are a few ways that you can give. You can give online or through the Salem Alliance app. Uh, There's also boxes in the lobby if you wanted to give money here. Some of what the giving goes towards when you give to the ministry fund at Salem Alliance are things like the English classes that you saw in the announcements or maybe the every parent event to support and equip and help parents. By the way, I'd love to see you there this afternoon if you're a parent. Uh, Or even just staffing. If you think about the people who, who are employed by Salem Alliance, I just have to tell you, I work with some of the best people on the planet. We love to worship together. We have a laugh hard, a work hard, play hard ethic. We laugh a lot together. There's a lot of joy in this place. And that's all because of your giving and it enables those of us who have a calling of ministry in our lives to to, uh, work that out here in this place. So thank you. The other thing that giving goes to is the the weekly celebration that we get to do of roses on the platform. There are four roses this week. Three are from people who gave their lives through the work of the Salem Free Clinics. And one is uh, someone by the name of Riker who pounded a ribbon on the cross, as I understand it, during the spontaneous baptisms last week. So can we celebrate that together? Speaking of those spontaneous baptisms, just filling you in on what happened around here last weekend, we had 13 people who were baptized, scheduled to be baptized, and were baptized last week. And then if you weren't here, uh, Pastor Rob opened up the waters of baptism to people who wanted to be baptized but maybe hadn't gone through the classes and prepared ahead. They were able to step into the lobby and talk with an elder and receive some clothes. And they, we had 20 people who were spontaneously baptized last weekend. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It was a beautiful picture of God at work in this place and his Holy Spirit on the move uh, last week, so we're grateful for that. One other update before we dive into the word. I uh, was up front last time uh, at the end of November, and some of you remember that I shared the journey with my voice. If you weren't here, you didn't hear that, I apologize that you don't get the long story. You don't need it today. Uh, The short version is I do have a medical condition that causes my uh, vocal cords to spasm and my voice to kind of pinch up and get tight. That's why sometimes you hear it uh, like I'm going to cry or it gets a little gravelly, that kind of thing. If you were here in November, you would have heard that I had um, discovered that there was a treatment for that and I was working with OHSU to get that treatment. The only reason I bring this all up is because several of you have asked me, several of you have been caring, I know several of you have prayed and I really appreciate that. The short of the long story is uh, the machinery at OHSU broke down in December and it hasn't been fixed yet and so I haven't had anything done. So that's all all of those words just to say nothing has changed. Except my heart. Uh, Along the process of the canceling and rescheduling, somewhere along the way, God reminded me that I'm not in control of this journey. I'm not in control of how it works, and I just get to follow and trust him. Um, So my heart has changed, but not my voice. Um, We have a congregational reading we've done together the last couple weeks as a call to worship, and I asked if we can move it right here to the front of the sermon, kind of as a call to the word and to receive uh, the word and the Holy Spirit through the word. So can we read this together as we uh, begin the message today? 
We are drawn to your feet in worship, your creation facing its creator, hearts laid bare by your light, humbly asking for your mercy. We come to you as a people in need of healing and wholeness. We come dependent upon your love. We come expectant for a move of your spirit. Draw us close, enfold us in your arms, fill us with your spirit, that we might reflect your light within this dark world. Speak your word with boldness and draw others to your feet. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. And so God, we do ask you to speak your word with boldness now as we open your word. Would you, God, be the voice that speaks truth to each mind and heart in this place? And would you, Holy Spirit, enliven the teaching of your word? In Jesus' name, amen. We started a series a couple weeks ago called Unexpected King. It's a series in the book of Matthew, and it's several narratives that Matthew has shared about Jesus the Messiah. Remember that Jesus was the promised Messiah for the Jewish nation. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets had foretold of a Messiah who would come, who would rescue them from their oppressors and be their savior. And so they had waited and waited, and Matthew is telling the stories of the Messiah when he came and the kingdom of heaven came to earth. And as we look at these narratives, today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13, and we'll start in verse 53 towards the end of chapter 13. So if you'd like to follow along in the Bible, I want to give you some time to look up Matthew 13. And while you're doing that, I have a confession to make. It's not really like a confession of sin, it's just kind of a confession that I'm a bit of a nerd, uh, because sometimes I listen to sports radio. Um, I get bored with K-Love or something else, I I especially like Dan and the Danettes on the Dan Patrick Show. Anybody else? Dan Patrick fans? Okay. Well, anyway, I listen to sports radio. So throughout the football season, I was aware of the quarterback drama at the San Francisco 49ers. Anybody else know what I'm talking about? I know lots of you do, but I'm guessing many of you don't. So let me explain what I learned through sports talk radio. Uh, by the way, I don't know how those talk show hosts can talk about the same thing for so long. There, there is that. Uh, apparently, the San Francisco 49ers had a starting quarterback, uh, Jimmy Garoppolo. We'll call him Jimmy G. And Jimmy G was doing a decent job for the 49ers, but in the first round of the 2021 draft, the San Francisco took with their first pick a quarterback, Trey Lance. Well, what does that do to Jimmy G? I mean, does he want to stay with the 49ers? Does he not? Do they have faith in him? Do they not? Why'd they take a quarterback as the quarterback? It was almost like middle school girl drama. Like, is the quarterback going to replace him or not? Well, so I'll fast forward through a lot of the hours of talk show, but after training camp, coming into this season, Trey Lance, the rookie, had the starting position, and they still had Jimmy G. They hadn't traded him. So Trey Lance starts the season, and very early in the season, he suffers a season-ending injury, and Jimmy Garoppolo steps up. And so, wow, isn't it great that the 49ers didn't trade their backup because they needed their backup? Well, lo and behold, mid-season, Jimmy G sustains a season-ending injury, and the 49ers are now at the backup of their backup, their third-string quarterback named Brock Purdy. Brock Purdy, was this was his first year, his rookie year, and he stepped in to lead the remainder of the season, and he went 6-0 and and led the San Francisco 49ers to the NFC title game until he suffered a season-ending injury, and that was the end of the 49ers' season. 
Those things I learned from sports radio. What I didn't learn, I learned this week from Brian Candelo, who happens to be the king of facts, little known facts. You could say trivial facts, but this was one that I was glad to learn. See, apparently in the NFL draft, the person who is picked dead last has a nickname. Anybody know that nickname? Mr. Irrelevant. And did you guys know that in 2022, Brock Purdy was drafted by the San Francisco 49ers with pick number 262, the last pick in the draft, and he was dubbed Mr. Irrelevant. You can see from this picture that he wasn't even at the draft to to stand up and receive his jersey. And the jersey they have made there, if you could see that little red, it actually says number 262 and Mr. Irrelevant. And Mr. Irrelevant led the San Francisco 49ers to the NFC title game. As we turn to Matthew chapter 13, what we're going to see, he was in his hometown and the people of Nazareth saw Jesus as Mr. Irrelevant. And yet he was their Messiah. But they missed it because he wasn't what they expected to see. Let's read about this in Matthew chapter 13. So when Jesus had finished telling these stories and illustrations, he left that part of the country. He had been in Galilee, and he returned to Nazareth, his hometown. When he taught there in the synagogue, everyone was amazed and said, where does he get this wisdom and the power to do miracles? I want to pause there for just a second, because some of us hear that and we think, oh, They were amazed, like in awe and wonder and impressed with him. Where did he get this power? Where did he get this wisdom? But that's not how we need to hear this. Because amazed can also mean like shocked or dumbfounded or like scratch your head, like what in the world? Like where did, like we see, we hear wisdom, but where did he get that wisdom? Like, yes, he moves in power, but where did he get that power? This wasn't the amazement of worship. This was the amazement of skepticism. And we see that because as we keep reading, it says, then they scoffed. He's just the carpenter's son. And we know Mary, his mother, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. All his sisters live right here among us. Where did he learn all these things? See, Jesus had been moving and ministering and working with people throughout the region. And the people, he'd begun to be called the son of man, which was a title for the Messiah. Some even in his disciples had said, you are the son of God. And Nazareth is saying, we know whose son this is. This is the son of the carpenter. This is the son of Mary. They're saying, whose son is this? We know. And they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. And then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his own family. And so he did only a few miracles there because of their unbelief. In the Gospel of Mark, it actually says he could only do a few miracles there because of their unbelief. Jesus was not what they expected to see, and so they missed out on the Messiah that they'd been waiting for, praying for, longing for, because they couldn't see past their prejudice and their expectations. Why was the response in Nazareth different? I imagine that you can imagine with me why a hometown might receive someone different than the rest of the world, and yet we kind of have this concept of a hometown hero, but that's not the reception that Jesus got in his hometown, and I wonder why that is. Nazareth wasn't a large metropolis. It was a small, maybe even sort of a backwoods village. Maybe a little bit like Kaiser. But 
I didn't want to throw Pratham under the bus. That's where I live. He didn't exactly grow up in a bougie home. His dad was a carpenter. His mom was Mary. His mom was pregnant with him before she was married to Joseph. And you and I know the Christmas story. We know the story of the virgin birth and the Holy Spirit and the visit of the angel. But let's be really, really honest for a second here. If a 15-year-old walked in a door and said to you or to me, hey, I'm pregnant, but I was ever, never even close to a guy, we would go, uh-huh, mm, sure. And that had to have been what Jesus' hometown thought, Right? So he's an illegitimate son of an inconsequential family in a nondescript village. And the question that they're asking is, who do you think you are? You're traveling the countryside. You're teaching like you know what you're talking about. We've heard about these miracles, but who do you think you are? And they rejected the son of God because he wasn't what they expected him to look like. And I wonder, do you and I reject things that God would be bringing into our life because they aren't the way that we expect them to look. Was it jealousy? Was it resentment? Was it simply just confusion like a does not compute? One of the things I think about when I think of the people of Nazareth is the fact that they were very well aware of Jesus' humanity. Many of them had grown up with him. They probably saw when he skinned his knee. They had a hard time wrapping their heads around his divinity. And yet we are very aware of Jesus' divinity and we sometimes have a hard time wrapping our heads around his humanity. And I think in order to really engage in this story, we need to recognize that what they were stumbling on was simply the fact that he wasn't what they expected. He was an illegitimate son of a nondescript family in a nondescript village. And yet he had an unexpected legitimacy when it came to the kingdom of God. And what was Jesus' response to this? I find this fascinating because I have sort of a people pleaser thread that runs through me. And when somebody criticizes me or is kind of leaning towards rejecting me or there's conflict or tension, you guys, I double my efforts to be understood to be known, to be seen. I try to, hey, can we go to coffee? Can we talk this through? Can we share stories with one another? And there's times when that's helpful when we're building relationship. But in this particular context, Jesus did not ruthlessly defend and protect his reputation. He did not redouble his efforts to convince them that he was the Messiah. He simply said, oh, yep, a prophet is without honor in his own hometown. There's a phrase that we've heard that says familiarity breeds Contempt, thank you. I, I knew the phrase all the other services so far. <laughs> Familiarity breeds contempt. And here was Jesus experiencing that. He maintained his own non-anxious presence in the face of this criticism and contempt and rejection. And how? Because Jesus knew whose son he was. Are you with me? People are starting to say, he's the son of man. He's the son of God. Nazareth says he's the son of Joseph. He's the son of Mary. And yet Jesus knew whose son he was. Do you remember when he was 12 and his parents lost him in Jerusalem? And when they came back and found him, where was he? He was in the temple. And he said, why does it surprise you that you found me in my father's house? He knew who his father's was. He knew whose son he was. And from that place of confidence in his identity, he wasn't blown and tossed and distracted and disturbed by the fact that the people didn't believe what he said about himself. 
I'm going to go school teach you on your school teacher here for just a second and just look at the definition of the word identity. Identity is the fact of being who or what a person or thing is. Identity is the fact of being who we are. And our world will say, you need to be this or this or this. And the world was telling Jesus, the Messiah is going to look like this or this or this. But the fact is, he was the living son of God and nothing could shake him from that because he knew his identity. See, Jesus wasn't diminished or impoverished by this encounter. But the people of Nazareth were both impoverished and diminished by their failure to recognize their Messiah the one they had longed for, the one they had prayed for, the one they were hoping for and expecting. They missed the kingdom of heaven. They missed the kingdom of God come on earth in the form of Jesus and the work that he was doing in the time that he walked on this earth because he wasn't what they expected. When Jesus was teaching about the bread of life, and you might remember this one, he was telling the people, you have to eat my body and drink my blood, and they were confused, and, and I understand why. And he said this was a hard teaching, and this was in Matthew chapter 11, and in verse 6, he says this, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. See, we are human, and in our humanity, we don't have the capacity to fully understand everything that God is and what he says and how he works. And so when someone says, how could a good God let hard things happen? That's being offended at Jesus. When someone says, how can he extend grace and forgiveness to someone who has sinned and wronged this bad? That's taking offense at Jesus. When we say, how can he judge at the end times and say that some people are actually going to go to hell? That's taking offense at Jesus. Because Jesus is not, is not uh, limited by our human understanding. His ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And there are going to be things about Jesus and the way that his kingdom comes on this earth and the way that his kingdom comes among us that are going to be beyond what we can understand. And are we going to recognize the son of God on the move within us or are we going to be like the people of Nazareth and miss his move because it didn't look like what we expected. Blessed is he who does not take offense at Jesus or his work. So I want to ask us two questions. The first one is this, how are we like the people of Nazareth? How are we dismissing and limiting who we will receive from? Are we rejecting? Are we criticizing certain things because they don't line up with our own preconceived ideas? And the second question is this, how are we like Jesus, grounded in our identity as children of the living God, so that we are not blown and tossed by the storms around us, by the criticism that comes our ways because of our faith, and by the rejection that some of you have faced, very real rejection from your family or your friends because of decisions you have made to honor and obey Jesus in your life. So how are we like the people of Nazareth? Who do we dismiss or reject Where are we filled with skepticism instead of worship? What are our assumptions about others and our own perception and our preconceived ideas? Are there certain people that we feel like, well, they could be people who would bring the kingdom, but we see others and we think, well, I'm probably not going to receive much of the kingdom of God from them. Perhaps it's someone who's homeless, too dirty, too lost. Perhaps it's someone whose appearance or body size you just somehow have in your mind that they wouldn't be one that would be the work of the kingdom would be coming through. Maybe it's gender. 
that's a woman, we can't listen to her. (laughs) I have heard that one before. Maybe it's age. They're too young for us to receive from them, or they're too old for us to receive from them. Friends, one of the strengths of this body of believers at Salem Alliance is our intergenerational unity, and that's why we need to strive to protect and defend our intergenerational unity and not get offended with one another, because we need each other. Language competency, someone who struggles with English, do you see them as a person that maybe you wouldn't be receiving from? Educational level, status or popularity, maybe you wouldn't think that you would receive from somebody who has a disability. I don't know where your filters might lay, but I wanna tell you a little story about me. Several years ago, I had an experience that kind of pulled the curtain back on a reality in my life that I had no idea was there. I was blindsided. I had this interaction with a person and the interaction, it really shook me. And as a result of it, this curtain was pulled back. I was talking with God and my eyes became open to the fact that I had this intricately designed complex system of leveling and filtering the people in my life. It was like this wall of boxes, open boxes that just big and little and this is, and that there was this constant internal work in me that was placing the people in my life and where they fit. Are they higher? Are they lower? Are they off to the side? Are they peers? Are they, are they people I would receive from? Or are they people I give to? Like I had no idea what a complicated system of judgment I had functioning. It was so subconscious for me that I was that it was happening seamlessly without even my own awareness. And it took an interaction with someone who didn't fit in the box that I had unconsciously placed them in to jolt me into an awareness that this was even happening in my life. And when that curtain pulled back and that moment, you guys, I remember where I was. I was up in the upper room and I was praying with God and this immense grief came over me that I realized that in my blindness, I had been dismissing and rejecting people that God had sent into my life because I had this man-made, human-made system of leveling and judging that I had no idea was there. I was prejudiced and I was blind to it. And I said, oh God, thank you, and I'm sorry. And in the moment of conviction came the moment of repentance. And there was this beautiful moment with God where I said, I don't want to live that way. Some of us need to invite God to open our eyes to where we are functioning with prejudice that we don't even know that we have. How are we like the people of Nazareth? And the second question is this, how are we like Jesus? Because in this moment, Jesus was not shaken. Jesus maintained a non-anxious presence. And how can you and I do that as well? Jesus knew who his father was and is. Do we? Do we know that our father is God and that we do not have to be shaken in the face of criticism and contempt and rejection? Do we recognize our identity as a fact of who God created us to be, not a compilation of what the people in our life have told us that we are, not even who we think we're supposed to be, not even the image that we try to project to others so that we look like the person that we think they want us to be. Our identity is a fact that was rooted in the creation of the world. Remember Ephesians 2.10? We were created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. Our identity is grounded in who God is, not in what the world says about us. And it's only when we grasp that that we can live without being blown and tossed by the winds of the storm of our culture and our society and the broken world that we live in. 
And I want to suggest that both of these responses, the humble response of asking God to open our eyes to see where we hold judgment and prejudice, and the humble response of receiving our identity from God rather than from what the rest of the world says or what we even say about ourselves, both take humility, and humility is a gift from Jesus. And so we, like Sean said, we sit with a posture of humility and of hunger to say, Holy Spirit, we need you. Your presence in this place, but also for holiness and right living in our own lives. And so there's two things I want to ask. The first one is this. Would you be willing to pray a prayer and ask God to expose any false assumptions or prejudice in your own life? And let me warn you, this is a dangerous prayer because when you pray it, he will answer And yet there's this sweet moment of, ugh, I don't like what I see, but in the kindness that leads us towards repentance, it's just right on the heels of grace and forgiveness. And a wow, I get to live different because I didn't even know that that was in there, a cancer in my soul impacting the way that I interact with the people around me. And so we ask God to expose our own prejudice, our own assumptions. One thing I wanna point out about this, because I think it's important for us to take note, I think the enemy of our soul is always on the attack. And in this particular instance, one of the ways attacks is that he wants to keep us blind. So he's whispering in our ear, you don't have any prejudice. You don't have any biases. You've worked on this. You don't need to pray that prayer that she's saying. She's not talking to you. She's talking to everybody else in the room. (laughs) Trying to keep us blind. But then when we pray the prayer and we ask God and in his kindness, he exposes something where we've been living in sin. And in repentance, we turn to him. The enemy quickly turns because now we're not blind. He can't keep just lying to us and keeping us blind. And so he changes his tactic and so he turns to shame. And he says, you're horrible. You're a terrible person. You call yourself a Christian, but you've been a racist and a sexist, and you have discriminated, and shame and condemnation heap on top of the truth that God was trying to tell us, because that's what the enemy does. He twists his lies with God's truth. And so as you pray this, I want to invite you to the place where you recognize that God's conviction also comes with God's grace. And in the spirit of repentance, we say no to shame and condemnation in Jesus' name. So we ask God to expose any false assumptions or prejudice, and we confess our own tendency to dismiss and reject that which doesn't fit our picture of God or God at work in the world. And the second thing is this, to anchor ourselves in our identity as children of God. Anchor yourself as a child of God. John 1.12 says this, But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. For many of us, this is simply an affirmation that yes, you are a child of God because you have believed that God is who he says he is and you've accepted his lordship in your life. Many of you have been in that baptism tank or one like it and you've said Jesus is the Lord of my life and I plan to follow him all my life and he says if that is true of you, then you are my child and nothing can cast that into doubt. Some of you may be here and you've never really believed in him. Maybe you've come to church and you've thought, but you've never really made a statement of, no, I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And it's only when we accept that grace and forgiveness through the surrender to his lordship and believe that he is the son of God that we receive that gift of becoming his child. Galatians 3.26 says this, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Another affirmation that it is our faith that makes us God's children, not our works or the things that we do to try harder. 
This final one that I'm going to put up on the screen behind me actually is with the picture that Sean shared with us of the children worshiping with their family here at Asbury. And it just reminds me so much of when Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Because friends, 1 John 3, 1 says this, see how very much our father loves us for he calls us his children and that is what we are. As we go to prayer, I just want to remind you of the posture that we've been invited to in this place for this service for worship, that posture of hungering and thirst. And I want to remind you that the altar is open not just for sin, not just for inviting more of the Holy Spirit, but also if you know you need, we love because he first loved us. And some of us need to sit in a place in your pew or at the altar to be reminded of how much God loves you and to receive that love and that identity from him. So let's stay in that posture of receiving as we worship. Thanks for listening to the Salem Alliance podcast. We hope you have been challenged and inspired. Salem Alliance is a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. To experience other messages and discover more about who we are, please visit salemalliance.org or download the Salem Alliance app. And again, thanks for listening.